Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The UK's property market, is it up or is it down? You may be addicted to Channel 4's grand designs, but would you really want to build your own home? And the great British pensions cash-in, is there trouble ahead? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Hugo Greenhouch, editor of the FT's Wealth magazine, and I'll be bringing you this week's money news in downloadable form. Now we start with that perennial favourite of dinner parties and pubs, what is happening with the UK's property market? We've heard stories of top-end flats and houses selling for a fraction of their initial asking price, but what does that mean for the broader market? Is your home going up in value, or do we face the dreaded spectre of negative equity once more? I'm joined now by Lucien Cook, Research Director at Savills, the man with his finger on the property button. Lucien, thanks for joining us. Now, your forecasts for the property market are out today. What are you predicting for house prices and transactions? And have you changed your view significantly from this time last year? Yeah, so uh, what we've tended to see in the UK housing market is a slowdown in house price growth. That's been most pronounced uh, in London. Parts of the Midlands and the North have been perhaps a little bit more resilient, but they have much more capacity for remaining house price growth going forward. Nonetheless, you know, we're forecasting that there's going to be a bit of a slowdown, continued slowdown over the next couple of years. Uncertainty around Brexit feeding into the wider economy despite relatively low interest rates, yet we wait to see exactly what happens uh, later on uh, this morning. We think the weakest performing region over the next five years will be London, and that really because that is now stretched. It's seen a prolonged period of house price growth. In terms of transactions, we can't see much upside uh, from the 1.2 million where the market's operating at the moment. They are likely, I think, to fall in the short term a little bit, perhaps down closer to 1.1 million, just because of that uncertainty. But the really interesting thing will be the change in the composition of them. Uh, and I suppose the big area there is that we're likely to see a further contraction in mortgage buy-to-let buying. That's interesting says the story so far has really been about London uh, as opposed to the rest of the country. So you're expecting a slowdown in terms of prices going up, but also what's going to happen to the kind of stratospheric rises that we've seen in recent years? Is that over now? Yeah, I think pretty much. I think it's very difficult to see how in a regulated mortgage environment you can have much more significant growth in London. So we're, whilst we're forecasting that house prices across the UK will rise by 14% over the next five years, in London we're down at 7%, and we're working on the principle that those prices might fall by 2% next year as a little bit of the froth continues to come out of that market. And that really reflects the fact that the average deposit for a first-time buyer in London is now over £99,000, so creeping up towards that enormous figure of £100,000. grief, that's, that's appalling. Which is huge, very heavy reliance on the bank of mum and dad, but equally really restricting the level of transactions.
international activity and who can get on the housing market there, but also the mortgage home mover. So they've got on the housing ladder and they're trying to trade up really constrained there. The average income for those households is £90,000. And that really is a reflection of how London has become stretched in light of house price growth of about 70% over the last 10 years. So a lot of bad news for London property owners there. But we're expecting later this morning a news from the Bank of England in terms of interest rates. And we're expecting them to, to raise them. What's this going to mean for, for property owners, do you think? Well, I think in the first instance, if we get a 0.25% increase uh, later on this morning, I think that's much more symbolic than anything else. And of course, what we've had in the UK housing market since 2014 is mortgage regulation, which means that when people go to get their mortgage, their, their affordability is stress-tested, building in interest rate rises. So I don't think it puts people into financial stress uh, particularly, but what it does do is just restrict the amount of mortgage which they're able to get in the future. And now, I don't think that has a material impact in the short term. Short term, it's much more about general economic uncertainty. But at the back end of the five-year period, I think that really will act as a drag on house price growth. So perhaps some good news for first-time house buyers in, in that sense. If, if interest rates go up and prices go down, could we see kind of younger people having more of a chance to get on the property ladder, do you think? Yeah, well, I think what's happened in the last five years in particular is house price growth has become seen much more as a double-edged sword. So whilst existing homeowners benefit from the house price growth that increases their financial security, makes them feel much more wealthy. The people trying to trade up the housing ladder or get on actually perceive house price growth, certainly excessive house price growth, as a bad thing. Uh, Now, the difficulty, of course, is I I don't think it will make it substantially easier for first-time buyers to get on the housing ladder, but it won't make it substantially harder for them to do so. (laughs) So so it's a bit of good news and a bit of bad news. As ever. Well, we've got one thing else uh, coming up quite soon, which is the budget on the horizon. And it looks as if we aren't going to get uh, 50 state injection into new housing if Philip Hammond's hints are to be believed. What do you think we might get? I mean, I think it's really interesting. What we have seen is a real change in political rhetoric around house building. And we have seen the government really nail its colours to the mast and say one of the things it wants to be known for is solving the housing crisis, which I think is a very tall order, but attempting to solve the housing crisis. I think you'll see continued measures to try and promote first time buyers. They've already obviously put in the additional 10 billion for the help to buy scheme. You could see further restrictions on on the buy to let investor. And I, I would imagine they'll also look at just trying to get house building up, getting more players into house building so that might be medium-sized and small house builders housing associations and councils and continuing to free up the planning system to do that now one thing here at the ft we've been following very closely is stamp duty and the possibility that the stamp duty surcharge on buy to let and second homes might be raised to pay for a stamp duty cut for first-time buyers this might be painful for landlords but it sounds politically plausible what do you think lucian well i mean i think stamp duty and the receipts of which have continued to go north has become much more politicised. So we saw back in, I think, 2015, the announcements that stamp duty was going to be used to deter buy-to-let investors. And for the mortgage buy-to-let investors, that's worked. Yet if you were to look at total numbers of people who were paying the additional 3%, they'd be much, much more robust than the government ever anticipated. So they may well feel that there's a bit more scope to increase that. Essentially, the reason why stamp duty receipts have continued to go north is because of this 3% stamp duty surcharge. But equally, the government has been under much more pressure to make it easier for first-time buyers and for second-steppers. But it's also under pressure at the other end of the market for the downsizers to release the barriers for those. So whereas previously we've seen increased rates of stamp duty, I think what we might start to see is some stamp duty breaks in amongst that as well. So some good news there and some bad news also from Lucian Cook at Savills. And you can read about the state of the UK's property markets in FT Money on Saturday as part of the FT Weekend newspaper or catch up online at ft.com forward slash money. Thanks again, Lucien.
Now we on the FT Money team have a very special offer for all our readers and listeners. Would you like to meet columnist Merrin Somerset Webb? The next FT Money Reader Investment Forum will take place two days before the budget on the evening of Monday, the twentieth of November. And Merrin will be discussing her investment outlook with the FT's Claire Barrett and Jonathan Ely, plus Chris Derbyshire from Seven Investment Management. To be held in central London, tickets will cost thirty pounds, including drinks and canapes. And to book and view terms and conditions, please have a look at ft.com/meetmerin. We've all watched Channel Four's grand designs and gleefully sniggered at the ambitions of those who have chosen to build their own homes. The more disasters, the better the show. But could you actually save money by going it alone? And is it really worth all the hassle? I'm joined now by FT Money columnist Lindsay Cook, who has taken the plunge and writes in this week's cover feature about building her own home. Lindsay, thanks for joining us, and well, wow, congratulations! But let's have a look at some of the practical pros and cons. Apart from the advantages of getting the home you want, what are the financial ramifications, and is it more or less expensive than buying a conventional new build or second-hand home? It should be cheaper, especially if you hire separate contractors and one of the family is project manager. That takes extra work, but a property near me in Sussex would have cost six hundred k to build and has recently been finished for about four fifty. So that is a big saving. You also get exactly what you want. Whereas often when you're buying from a property developer, you think you've got a price and then they add some extras when you want a different kitchen or whatever. There's more work. You set exactly what you want, and there's no extras at the fitting out stage. And essentially, it should cost you about fifteen hundred to two thousand pounds per square meter. Now we all have tales, or heard tales at least, of, of builders and overexpensive kind of running and up huge bills. Just quickly, let's have a look at the at, at that uh, issue. You say you can save money, but I guess you have to keep a very very tight control on on what people are doing and oversee everything. Are the hassles worth it? They are. I have what I regard as a perfect home. My husband did add about twenty light <laughs> fittings to the build, but it worked out. You've got to be disciplined. If you're not that disciplined, you can go for one of these prefabricated houses, often from Germany and other Scandinavia. There, you detail every element of the spec. The price is absolutely fixed at the time. And then you can't add anything, but nor can they add anything through the bill. Well, that's more like it in that case. But the government's actually been taking steps to support self-builders. And are, are there specific measures people can take advantage of? Well, there was the 2011 Housing Strategy for England, and this is to encourage local authorities to provide development land, suitable service plots for people who want to build their own homes. It's early days. People should register with their local authority. Every local authority will have something online. Register saying you want to be a self builder. It's early days, so not enough people have done it yet. But as soon as there are lots of people, then those councils will have to find some service land. At the moment, according to AMA Research, who do a report every couple of years. It's the northeast and west Midlands where the councils are most helpful to self. That's interesting. We'll have a look at that. I mean, they're getting great stuff there and some good, good support, if nothing else. But, but what's the process? Do do self builders typically buy and demolish existing building and then build their own place, or or should they look to kind of buy land then seek planning permission? And is the planning system generally sympathetic to self build? I would say you've got to allow at least six months if you're going to buy somewhere and then get permission, and you've got probably go through five iterations of. 
of your planning because they'll want different things and each application might cost you more, but it's worth it. There are few plots with planning permission available. Again, close to me, I noticed one yesterday, 400,000 and it's only big enough for a three-bedroom house. So you're not getting a bargain there. Quite a few people who've got large gardens sell off part of their garden and they, if they're sensible, they get planning permission first so it's got better value Oh, that's a good idea, it. absolutely. Others build themselves and move into the new house and then sell, the, sell their old house. A lot of estate agents are queued up to this and they will have lists of properties that are usually small, need a lot of work, maybe have a bit of um, development problems on a large plot and they sell those and advise people how to get the permission to knock them down, etc. So lots of options there, but also, I guess, look and tread carefully. But let's go back to the money, which I'm sure most people will be keen to to look at, and particularly when it comes to mortgages. So what what are the options for self-builders and can they access the ultra-low rates that, that we currently have at the moment? They tend not to be able to get into those loans straight away. There's usually about 20 lenders. You're often better off going through a broker. You have stage payments because they won't pay you all the money up front in case you go off to Puerto Rico and don't build the place. (laughs) They have to be sure that you can complete a property that somebody else would want to buy because if it's worth less than the mortgage, they've um, not done well for the, uh, the lender. Prefab or kit houses are probably best for this, but other properties, and we all see this on Grand Designs, I mean, they're borrowing from all their relatives. That's not how you should should do it. But get a loan. It will be more expensive. The payments will be staged. But when it's completed, you then move on to a cheaper loan. You have to be aware, though, some of the smaller lenders who specialise in this do have an exit fee if you want to go on to a cheaper loan. So check it out. But the loans are there. And I imagine if the property market is slowing down... They'll want to lend to somebody. Very, very true. But uh, let's go back to the the, uh, the grand designs question, which which is why it makes such gripping telly. But what if it goes all horribly wrong and my builder goes bust, having received a large chunk of my cash? What, what are my options? And do you recommend insurance against that? I do recommend insurance. There are several policies that will cover you for your builder going bust. Even the um, structural 10-year warranty should give you some cover. It may be limited to 100k if the builder goes bust, but they tend to go bust when they've had most of your money. So Absolutely. they don't do it in the early days. And then you can complete. There are other policies with different organisations they're all listed you also need public liability theft and fire cover if you're project managing yourself and you just need to be very careful about all those policies if you want to cover you've hired a builder you notice he's probably been bankrupt before it'll cost you thousand pounds to fifteen hundred to get some cover to get somebody to pay finish it wonderful stuff there and very very tempting i have to say but i'm not sure i would trust a family member to project manage my my own self bill but uh, thank you very much there, there to our columnist Lindsay cook and you can read all about the troubles and tribulations and the successes in her story now on ft.com forward slash money And finally, we turn our attention to the pensions transfer market. Under radical reforms to pensions rules in 2015, people were given the right to access their pensions pots rather than be forced to buy an annuity, which would have delivered a secure income for life. Since then, more than £50 billion in defined benefit pensions payments, often called the gold-plated pension, has flowed out of private sector schemes as people have rushed to cash in. Now the regulator is becoming concerned. It has already forced a number of firms advising on transfers to suspend their activities and our pensions correspondent Joe Cumbo has been investigating reports that members of final salary schemes are being targeted by advisers, sometimes using high-pressure tactics to drum up business. 
I'm joined on the line now by Tom McPhail, Head of Policy at Hargis Lansdowne, to tell us more. Tom, let's start with the regulator. What, what are the issues that the regulator is concerned about in the transfer market? They're, they're concerned about whether there's consumer detriment there, so they're worried about whether people are transferring money inappropriately and, and therefore under what circumstances that might be happening, whether the advice processes involved particularly are fit for purpose and whether perhaps advisors or the, the financial services industry generally is being a little over enthusiastic at encouraging people to give up these guaranteed uh, final salary pensions that they currently hold in exchange for the uncertainty but greater control of the money purchase pensions that they are in some cases being moved into. It's interesting, isn't it, looking at the reasons why people are doing that. I mean, certainly the regulator's advice is that most people are probably better off not giving up a defined benefit pension. So why have so many people given up their DB pensions with around 220,000 transfers since 2015? Well, in some cases, there are legitimate reasons for doing this. For example, Typically, the death benefits available under final salary schemes can be quite restrictive. If you're not married, the pension income entitlement could die with you. So if you have other family members that you might want to pass your pot on to, then transferring out of the final salary scheme into an alternative kind of pension would allow you to do that. Similarly, if you're in poor health... You can, you can draw down on that money much faster for your limited remaining life through a money purchase pension, through a personal pension, as opposed to having to take the, the standard income from the final salary scheme until it expires. So in some cases, it may well make sense. But underlying this, there is concern that it is being driven by a, a more generalized and diffuse desire on people's part simply to take control of their money. This sense that when the money's in a final salary scheme, you can't control it. It gets doled out to you by the scheme. It's outside your control. If you put it in a money purchase pension, it's your pot of money. You can draw on it at will. You can take lump sums out of it. And the FCA, the regulator, is rightly concerned that for some people, whilst that might sound superficially attractive, in the long term, it won't be in their best financial interest to do that. Well, quite. I mean, I think a lot of people are seeing the very, very attractive nature of a huge lump sum is kind of jammed today. So are we lining up problems for tomorrow, do you think? Potentially, yes. And of course, in some cases, people might have particular cash need that they need to address, so they want to pay off a debt or they have urgent pressing needs. However, that money can only get spent once, and the security and certainty of a guaranteed income for life from a final salary scheme is going to be worth a great deal to people. Typically, people underestimate how long they're going to live for. And there is a very real concern that even if they don't spend all the money at once, after the money's been transferred into a personal pension, it will get drawn down too quickly. And as people move into later life, into their 80s, 90s, in some cases into their hundreds, there won't be money left there to support them. Well, let's look at a specific example of somebody who might want to transfer and whether it's a good idea. But if, if someone is worried about the strength of their employer, for example, or former employer, is this a good enough reason to transfer out of the company pension scheme, do you think? In very extreme cases, it might be. It's interesting to note that deficits on final salary schemes are already reducing as interest rates start to creep up. The fears of large-scale collapse in final salary schemes is diminishing. The Department for 
work and pensions and the financial regulator the pensions regulator have both said they are not overly concerned about the the long-term sustainability of the final salary scheme sector in general there will however be isolated specific cases such as bhs very high profile case from a year or so ago there will be isolated companies where the, the employer does go bust and where there is insufficient money in the pension scheme now where that happens there is the lifeboat scheme the pension protection fund that stands behind it so most people will still get most of the pension they're entitled to if you are a very high earner with a very large pension promise in a final salary scheme and you have immediate concerns that both the employer is about to go bust and that the scheme is in deficit, then that's the kind of situation which might lead you to conclude you're better off getting out. But those are very isolated examples. Well, let's look at the, the practicalities. I mean, how can someone know if the transfer is right for them? The important thing is you have to take advice. And so you're paying a regulated financial advisor to go through the numbers, to look at your personal circumstances and take a professional view on whether a transfer is right for you. Now, as we've already touched on, the regulator is concerned that in some cases that advice could perhaps be skewed, particularly where the advisor is not charging a fee up front for their services, where they're only going to get paid if you do go ahead and make the transfer, what's referred to as contingent charging. However, if you've paid for professional advice, however that advice has been paid for, then someone has taken responsibility for your outcomes. And if subsequently it turns out that that advice was poor, there may be potential for address. Of course, you don't want to have to end up there in the first place. But come back to your question. You talk to an advisor, you get professional advice, and hopefully then you can make a well-informed decision about what's best for you. And here's hoping we aren't creating a generation of Viv Nicholson's, the immortal lottery winner with the phrase spend, spend, spend. Spend, spend, indeed. Uh, but Tom McPhail there from Hargreaves Lansdowne, thank you very much for joining us. And you can read Joe Cumbo's investigation into the pensions transfer market now on FT.com. Now, have you got a story you would like the FT Money to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at money at FT.com, tweet us at FT Money or comment on our articles online at FT.com forward slash money. That's all from The Money Show this week. We'll be back at the usual time next Thursday. Thank you and goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.